I next met with Dr. Mark Sosinski, and to begin, he presented a 65-year-old man from his practice. He was a gentleman that is a former smoker, actually was a truck driver by trade, was retired at this particular point, and he actually presented with some difficulty with ambulation, some ataxia, showed up at a neighboring hospital in Pittsburgh and was found to have a cerebellar mass, which was resected at the outside institution. And then he and his family, once he came out of the hospital, he was found at that point to have a lung mass also. They came to the Hillman Cancer Center to see me, and we initially you know, got his outside tissue, initiated molecular testing, found an exon 19 deletion mutation, and that's how he kind of came to my attention. I don't think I've ever seen this guy without his son and his wife. They've been very supportive from a family perspective in helping to take care of him because he had a tough time post-operatively from the neurosurgical procedure and had, because of the ataxia, kind of gone downhill from a performance status point of view. I remember saying to him, you know, he's a male, had about a 30 to 40 pack year exposure. As I remember, I said, you know, we're going to do molecular testing, but I don't think we're going to find anything, but you're still recovering. Let's wait a week or two for the results of it. And lo and behold, he came back with an EGFR mutation. He was probably the one I least suspected to have that sort of molecular finding. So like most patients with EGFR mutations, this man was started on an EGFR TKI, in this case, erlotinib. What did you say to him when you started this therapy? Yeah, the most common way I explain this to patients is that this mutation really is kind of the light switch for your cancer. It's a proliferative pathway. It causes the cancer to grow. It is the dominant, you know, we refer to it as an oncogenic driver, but patients understand it as either a light switch or there's, you know, one person driving the cancer bus, so to speak. And so they have the ability to understand that we have the ability to take out that driver or turn off the light switch with an oral agent that's targeted at the particular molecular abnormality that we've diagnosed in their particular case. So patients kind of visually see kind of the light bulb going off in the cancer responding. And of course, we have the luxury of, you know, 70 to 75% of these patients do have very good responses. And so they come back six to 12 weeks later, we repeat their radiographs. Typically, they feel better because their cancer is responding. We show them their CAT scan and the five centimeter lung mass is now, you know, 1.5 centimeters. And it's visually very dramatic for patients to see this. You mentioned the fact that the vast majority of people will have tumor shrinkage. Typically, how long does it last? And do you see people getting cured? You know, about 70 to 75% of patients have significant shrinkage. They would meet a partial response criteria. The likelihood of having a complete response, you know, I think is largely dependent upon your volume of tumor when you start. But certainly we have had people that have had complete disappearance of their radiographic manifestation of the cancer. I think we don't think that this cures people. There's certainly been people who have been on these oral agents for several years, if not five plus, and that's been the experience of isolated number of patients. From an average point of view, you know, the patient has a good response and it lasts on average kind of in the 10 to 13 month range and, you know, kind of in that ballpark or so. So they are typically somewhat symptomatic when they present. They feel better because their cancer 
has spread. And I usually say to the patient, you know, my expectation is that this is probably going to last about a year, maybe less, maybe more. If you're lucky, you know, obviously we all have patients that have been two, three, four years on these agents and continue to feel well. And so that's kind of how I counsel them in terms of the expectation of what this is going to be like. I saw a patient this week actually in my clinic who's been similar to this patient about 18 months on erlotinib. And her scan is still showing a very nice response. And we had the discussion that she was actually shocked because she, you know, is waiting for, quote unquote, the ball to drop and for her cancer to progress. But I said, look at, you know, things look good. You feel well. Your CAT scan looks unchanged from the scan three months ago. So my expectation is, I don't know when this is going to progress, but let's rejoice in the good news we have at this point and continue on. She's having virtually no toxicity. We did have to dose reduce her down to 100 milligrams of erlotinib because of some skin toxicity. But otherwise, you know, she takes her pill once a day and does perfectly fine. What about when you counsel patients in terms of toxicity? What do you say to them? You know, the two dominant toxicities are skin rash. The vast majority of patients get some manifestation of skin rash. It's described as an acneiform sort of thing. We generally give them clindamycin ointment as well as minocycline prescription. Our nurses are very involved in the initial education about rash. We ask the patient to call us within a week. Many patients I see back in two weeks because that's about the peak time to having the rash. And so you can intervene with supportive care measures and keep, you know, a rash at the grade one and two level rather than letting it get way out of hand. Certainly about kind of 5 to 10% of patients have a high-grade rash. It's rip-roaring. The first one to two weeks or one month or so are pretty tough on patients. We do get support from our dermatology team in terms of managing them, but the rash has never been a deal-breaker in terms of taking the tumor. Many patients have the knowledge there's this association between rash and response, so it's almost like the badge of courage, if you will. If it's affecting my skin, it must be affecting my tumor, so patients are willing to kind of fight through it with supportive care and that sort of thing. The other toxicity is diarrhea, which I worry a bit more about because certainly we've had the occasional patient that has grade three or four diarrhea that can end up with the obvious electrolyte abnormalities and dehydration. I've never had to admit a patient to the hospital, but we've had a few elderly patients that have required multiple clinic visits for hydration and, you know, kind of getting them through good anti-diarrheal medication, seeing them back, correcting electrolyte abnormalities and those sorts of things. But again, I think like any toxicity, Neil, the whole thing is education and prevention strategies in telling the patient when to expect rash and diarrhea, which is in the first one to two weeks, to call early. You have the supportive care medications there. The nurse is going to counsel you in terms of how to do that. When it's appropriate to come into the clinic and be seen, come early. Don't let yourself get dehydrated. All those sorts of things are very important from a nursing education. And the patients obviously call the nurses first. And so the nurse should be very aggressive at getting patients to come in to be seen and managed early so that these toxicities don't end up being grade three or four in really are much more of a management issue at that point. So before we get into what actually happened with this man once he got put on the erlotinib, 
Maybe we just take a step back and talk a little bit about how you assessed him as a person. First of all, from the point of view of information, was he asking you a lot of questions, going out on the internet, or pretty much just saying, tell me what to do? He personally was tell me what to do. He was kind of the old-fashioned, you're the doctor, you know what to do. Again, as I mentioned, this guy was a retired truck driver, salt of the earth, sort of Pittsburgher, if you will. His son was actually more of the getting information on the internet. Obviously, when I first saw them, we didn't know he had the EGFR mutation, but those sorts of questions came up. Up. They actually were, once we knew about the EGFR mutation, at that point, it was relatively straightforward what to do. And, you know, he ended up going on the drug. He had a bit of toxicity, and he was one of these patients that required some frequent hydration and that sort of thing to get him through the initial toxicity. We did dose reduce him to 100 milligrams, which he remains on at this point. And that was because of diarrhea? Yes, and a little bit of dehydration. How about his skin? His skin, he didn't have much of a rash, and that was really never a major issue with this guy. How did you assess sort of the way he was coping with this personally now, you know, dealing with a disease that's not likely to be cured? Did you get into, did he ask questions about sort of what to expect from the future? And what did you see as his major sort of coping strategy? Well, I think the advantage that many of these EGFR mutation patients have is that this is a disease which is associated with a much better prognosis than it is. You know, I counsel patients on that regard. This is a marker that suggests that, you know, whereas the run-of-the-mill lung cancer nowadays in stage four has a median overall survival time of roughly one year, you know, plus or minus a few months, depending upon other characteristics. We know in the EGFR mutant population that their median survival is in the two to three plus range. And so they simply just do much better with treatment because they have a kind of less, I don't want to say aggressive tumor, but they have a tumor in which the proliferative pathway is easier to target and more effectively targeted than it is more so in other subsets of lung cancer. So I think early on, almost every patient who comes in with lung cancer thinks that it's a pretty dismal outlook. In the case of a patient like this, you can say to them, you know, and I remember having this discussion with his son because he was asking some questions and, you know, alluded to the fact that he had looked at some things on the internet. And I always say in this population, you know, the internet is going to describe the average lung cancer patient. About 10% of the patients have these mutations and they're a different subset of patients. And so they do much better than average. So you have to go specifically to look at information about EGFR mutant patients and not necessarily about general lung cancer sorts of patients. This guy was pretty accepting. You know, I stress to patients that they have treatable but not curable disease. I also will point out that many of these patients with a response have a pretty good quality of life and their symptoms are pretty minimal from the cancer perspective in that, you know, in a situation like he was in, that there's a possibility that being on oral therapy, which he was very happy to be on versus IV chemotherapy, you know, offers the chance that you could have fairly good disease control for months, if not a couple years. And he ended up on Erlotinib going about 18 months or so. And I think was always very appreciative of the fact that taking an oral tablet once a day yielded this much benefit in him. And his family was also as grateful. So as he received the Erlotinib, what was happening with the tumor? 
he had a nice response. He kind of had bilateral lung nodules, and based on CT, he met the criteria for partial response easily. Did not have a complete response. He still had some residual lower lobe nodules, some pleural thickening sort of thing on the right side. But he was pretty much asymptomatic from his chest disease and really was not having any symptoms that I could relate that were specific cancer-related symptoms. And what was his lifestyle like during those 18 months? Was he able to kind of return to a normal lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, he was retired and again, salt of the earth, Pittsburgh type people. They were not world travelers and stuff like this. But I think that he got out and about. Family was very important to him. As I mentioned, his family was always with him at every visit. And so I think that he was content and happy with his lifestyle. He was devoid of lung cancer symptoms. Once we got him kind of over the hump and on a stable dose of Lotnib. I would see him every two months or so, and we wouldn't necessarily hear from him between visits because he was kind of doing well. So I think all in all, his quality of life was quite good, living the lifestyle that he was accustomed to living before he developed the ataxia and the presentation of his disease. You said that at 18 months, your feeling was your lotnib wasn't working. Why was that based on his imaging? Yeah. You know, we scan these people every two or three months, and often we are in a situation where the patient continues to feel well and is relatively asymptomatic, but their CT scan starts showing disease progression. This is a heterogeneous group of patients. Sometimes the disease progression is in a single site. Sometimes it's in multiple sites. Sometimes the disease progression is very indolent. So even though it may meet so-called resist criteria for progression, we tolerate that because the disease is still pretty minimal. The patient's asymptomatic. They're tolerating the treatment well. And so we kind of say, well, you know, it is a little bit bigger. Your measurements are a little bit bigger, but you're still asymptomatic. The pace of growth isn't impressive. Let's kind of give it another couple months and kind of see what the scan looks like. And I think part of the art of taking care of these patients is when do you intervene in switch therapy? And of course, nowadays, you know, one of the hot topics is the third generation TKIs that are coming through relatively quickly that are appropriate for about half of the patients who have a secondary mutation, which you can only diagnose by rebiopsying the patient. So often the question is in these slow progressors is, you know, when do you send them to the surgeon or the interventional radiologist to get a repeat biopsy for repeat molecular testing? So you mentioned there's a third generation. First of all, what are the second generation drugs and what do we know about these third generation drugs? Good point. Erlotinib and gefitinib, for those people who remember gefitinib, are the so-called first-generation agents. These are reversible EGFR kinase inhibitors. The second-generation drugs, the only one on the market right now is a fatinib. There is another drug called dacometinib. These are irreversible inhibitors, and they inhibit all of the kinases of the HER family, HER1, HER2, HER3, and 4. So they're somewhat different. It's not clear between the first and second. You know, we have a first-generation drug or lotnib, second-generation drug of fatnib. They're both effective drugs. It's not clear that one is more efficacious than the other. They've not been compared to date head-to-head. The third generation agents are a couple of drugs that are designed to inhibit specifically the mutation. Part of the reason that we have 
side effects is that the first and second generation drugs are not specific to the EGFR mutation. So they will inhibit normal EGFR. And we have normal EGFR in our skin and gut in those sorts of places. And that's why you see that toxicity. The third generations are drugs that are engineered to be much more selective for the mutant EGFR and not necessarily inhibit the normal EGFR that's in our skin and our gut. And so you see less of those sorts of toxicities with the third generation agents. Now, about half the patients that progress have a secondary mutation called T790M. And these drugs are much more active in the T790M positive population than they are in the T790M negative population. So the specific reason to rebiopsy this group of patients is to retest and look specifically for T790M and then offer them one of these third generation drugs currently not FDA approved yet, but currently in clinical trials in multiple places. And the early data with these drugs show that they are really highly effective in this population and also very well tolerated. So in patients without this secondary T790 mutation, do they benefit from this drug? Well, you know, in the early data we have from the trials, there appears to be a low level of activity in the T790M. But right now, these drugs are focusing on the T790M positive population. So, you know, I don't think we've necessarily given up on these drugs in the negative population, but certainly in the drug development world, we'd like to get these drugs to market. And it's pretty clear that there is a greater advantage of these drugs in the T790M positive population. But I wouldn't necessarily in the future discount a potential role in the negative population. So he went on this third generation agent, rosalitinib. What happened? Well, actually, this was a relatively recent treatment for him. He started on it about... I'm thinking he's coming up on his first scan on trial, which is either six or eight weeks into treatment. So the one thing is that he's not really had much toxicity with the drug. He's had no skin rash, had no diarrhea. This was a bit of a concern of mine because, you know, of his experience initially with erlotinib. But he's really done very well on the drug thus far. And I think as I was perusing my clinic list for next week, he's either coming next week or the week after for his first on-study scan. So I don't have a sense of what it is. But, you know, clinically, he looks well. He says he feels better. You know, at the very end, he was beginning to have some chest discomfort on the right side and maybe a little bit of a cough, maybe a little bit of shortness of breath. And he actually looked at me when I saw him, I think two weeks ago, and, you know, kind of said, I think this stuff is working because my cough is better. I feel better. My chest feels better. So we'll see on his scan when I see him in a week or two. If he were not eligible for a study like the one he ended up being on, What are some of the other options that might have been considered at the point that he was getting worse? Well, you know, this is a patient who's never had standard chemotherapy. So standard chemotherapy is effective in these patients. And there's some data to suggest, although the data is not completely consistent, that perhaps from a treatment like carbopaclitaxel or carbopemetrexid that, you know, they may be a bit more active in the EGFR 
mutant population than they are in the EGFR normal population. So certainly I think chemotherapy is a good option for these patients. I would consider using bevacizumab if the patient were appropriate. There's been some recent data with bevacizumab in combination with erlotinib that suggests that, you know, maybe it's that combination, but certainly bevacizumab is a drug that I would consider if the patient were otherwise appropriate for bevacizumab and had no other contraindications. So I think from a clinical practice in the community perspective, probably the standard of care if you don't have access to one of these third generation drugs is the use of chemotherapy. Typically, these are all adenocarcinoma patients, so docs often use pemetrexid-based therapy. I use Bev in these patients if they're bevacizumab eligible. The only other consideration, I think, where we have some data is this combination of afatinib plus cetuximab. Now, we have phase one, phase two data, not a lot of published series with that doublet. It's a doublet that clearly has activity that appears to be equal amongst the T790M positive and negative populations. So certainly in those patients that are T790M negative, I think it's a consideration of more importance than it is in the T790M positive because of drugs like rosuletinib. But again, I think that regimen is fraught with being relatively toxic in my opinion. And the fact that it's not an FDA approved regimen, it's as you can imagine too branded drugs, cetuximab and afatinib, it's not inexpensive. And it's not clear that that's better than standard chemotherapy. We don't have any randomized data against a standard control with that regimen. So I think although that would be a consideration outside of a clinical trial at this point, I would not consider that a standard treatment at the present time. So let's talk about another one of your cases. How about this 55-year-old lady This was really an amazing case to me because this lady presented to an outside hospital with not complete right hemiparesis, but she was unable to walk. I remember seeing her and she initially had a dominant lesion in her left frontal lobe close to the motor strip that explained her deficit. She actually had that lesion resected at an outside hospital, but the tumor was too necrotic to make a diagnosis of this firmly. So at that time, obviously, in the hospital, she was found to have a right lower lobe lung mass, and that was biopsied by bronchoscopy at the outside institution and shown to be adenocarcinoma of the lung. I remember very distinctly the first time I saw her because she had, I think, five or six family members, all of which were women, And it was her daughter, it was a couple sisters, it was her mother that was there in the room. Our exam rooms aren't that big at Hillman Cancer Center. And this room, I could hardly fit in the room with my fellow at the time. But she was in a wheelchair and she was unable to move her right arm. She could not lift it against gravity. And she had just started whole brain radiotherapy the day before I saw her. So this whole family comes, you know, here I'm looking at a patient who has a very poor performance status. I wasn't that optimistic that she was going to get better, but I said, you've got two weeks of brain radiation, you're on steroids, let's get your tumor from the outside hospital, let's genotype it, that'll take us two to three weeks, I want to see you back in three weeks and see how things are going and I'll have the genotype at that particular time. She came back three weeks later with the same crowd of five or six women. And lo and behold, at this point, even though she took a wheelchair up 
to the exam room. She got out of the wheelchair and walked into the exam room this time. And so she, with a combination of steroids and whole brain radiotherapy, had a dramatic response with regard to her CNS symptoms and ultimately her CNS disease. So when I saw her back three weeks later, we started to talk about chemotherapy at this point. And I said, well, you know, your performance status is now close to a one. I would give you a platinum-based doublet. She had no other contraindication to bevacizumab other than the brain situation. So since she had improved so dramatically from her CNS point of view, I actually, a week or two later, said, let's repeat your brain MRI and see if you've had a response. And in fact, she did. Now, I had the luxury at that time, she had this right lower lobe lesion. She had no other METs. She had no bone METs, no liver METs, nothing else. This right lower lobe lesion was asymptomatic. I had a little bit of time for her to recover from the brain radiation and the neurologic compromise before I felt I really had to give her something systemically. And lo and behold, her MRI showed a dramatic response in the brain. And we know that if your brain METs are treated and controlled, that the use of bevacizumab is safe, and I would use it in a patient like that. That was defined by the PASSPORT trial in which we did this several years ago and established the safety in this population. So we ended up treating her with carboplatinum, paclitaxel, and bevacizumab. And her only site of measurable disease is her right lower lobe lesion. And she had a very solid partial response to that lower lobe lesion. And after four cycles, she was beginning to develop a little bit of neuropathy. So I stopped the carbo in paclitaxel after four cycles. And I think she's on her eighth or ninth cycle of maintenance bevacizumab at this point. And actually her most recent CT scan shows that her cancer in the right lower lobe is still in a nice response and she's really not having any problems with therapy at the current time. You mentioned the issue of the brain mets and whether or not bevacizumab could be used. What are the situations nowadays where you don't use bevacizumab? Well, the first thing is absolutely having a good level of confidence with regard to the histologic diagnosis. So if there's any suggestion that there may be a squamous predominance in the histology or squamous histology, I would avoid it. The other major contraindication is if patients are coughing up blood. So hemoptysis is a contraindication to using bevacizumab in this population. There are a number of, in my mind, relative contraindications. Patients over the age of 70, and certainly patients over the age of 75, there's not enough established information that the benefit is there relative to the risk of side effects from bevacizumab. So I think age is a relative contraindication. Comorbidities, if patients have had recent MIs or recent strokes or arterial vascular events, thrombotic events, those sorts of things. Uncontrolled hypertension is another issue or hypertension that's been difficult to control in the past would be a relative contraindication. So those are the major ones. I don't think I've missed any at this point, but those are the major ones. So you mentioned that bevacizumab is not used in squamous cell. Is that because it doesn't work or because of toxicity? In one of the initial trials with this agent, there were 13 patients with squamous histology that were treated with bevacizumab, and four of them had life-ending or life-threatening pulmonary hemorrhage. So the concern in the squamous is not necessarily about efficacy, it's about the risk of pulmonary hemorrhage, which can be fatal. 
So knowing the histology with a high level of confidence is important with regard to choosing whether or not you're going to use bevacizumab. Now, what happened in terms of side effects while she was getting the chemotherapy and bevacizumab, and then when she was getting the bevacizumab alone? Yeah, so while she was getting carbopaclitaxel, she actually, I think if I remember correctly, I dose-reduced her paclitaxel on cycle three and four. After a couple cycles, she had developed what I would call grade two neuropathy. So she had some persistent paresthesias. She didn't really have any functional compromise, but certainly I think part of the art of managing neuropathy is preventing it actually by appropriate dose reduction. So I dose reduced her cycle three and cycle four. I typically start at 200 milligrams per meter squared for cycle one, and then I typically reduce to 175 or 150 per meter squared, depending upon the symptoms. I think neuropathy can be very damaging to your quality of life from a day-to-day sort of basis. So I pay very close attention to patient symptoms of neuropathy, and I'm very happy to dose, reduce, or stop if the symptoms are persistent, and certainly if they start to have functional compromise due to the neuropathy. What about the bevacizumab? Any hypertension or proteinuria? As often is the case, once you've stopped the cytotoxic chemotherapy and patients go on bevacizumab alone, they really tolerate it relatively well. Typically, I do have a few patients on maintenance BEV in which managing hypertension has been a bit of an issue. In this particular case, her blood pressure is always in the 120 to 130 over 70 to 80 range. She's not really had any issues. She's had no proteinuria associated with it. And I think she's probably at around dose nine or so at this point, because I know we've done another scan recently, which I would have done after cycle number eight. So she's been on it for a number of months now and really not having any issues. The type of issues that you have are typically hypertension, maybe dealing with some proteinuria. So this patient received, as you said, carbo and paclitaxel with bevacizumab. The other common regimen that's utilized is carbo and pemetrexed and bevacizumab. How do you decide between those two options, and how did you decide in her? You're right. We do have a trial called the Point Break trial, which compared those two regimens head-to-head, and there does not appear to be any difference in efficacy whether you use bevacizumab with carbopaclitaxel or bevacizumab with carbopemetrexid. The toxicities differ. The major thing that I find that patients make a decision about is with regard to hair loss. Many patients don't want to lose their hair, and very often because of that, I will use carboplatinum, pemetrexid, and bevacizumab. This lady had had whole brain radiotherapy, and she had already lost her hair from the radiation aspect of it. So that wasn't a concern to this particular patient. We had initially, actually now that I remember exactly why I chose paclitaxel, we initially were considering her for the SWOG trial, the Southwest Oncology Group trial, 0819, in which carboplatinum paclitaxel is the regimen that's used on the protocol. 
Now, for reasons I can't remember, she ended up not meeting one of the eligibility criteria, and I can't remember which one it was, but we had already discussed carboplatin and paclitaxel for the trial, and so once she couldn't go on the trial, I just decided to treat her there. She was fine with it. Again, hair loss wasn't an issue. She had no baseline neuropathy. She did develop, obviously, on treatment, some neuropathy, but obviously we can't predict that. So that's why we chose carbopaclitaxel in this case. So we just completed a patterns of care study of 101 oncologists and lung cancer and several other cancers. And one of the things that we found that I'm sure won't surprise you is that almost all oncologists use some type of maintenance treatment in this situation with a patient who has this adenocarcinoma. And can you explain sort of what the thinking is behind maintenance? And we know just as in the survey that the two kinds of maintenance that you use are either bevacizumab, as this lady got, pemetrexed, which is often used, and sometimes both. What's the thinking there? Well, you know, we spent a decade or so looking at duration of therapy with regard to platinum-based therapy, and to distill several trials that address the duration of therapy, it kind of came out that giving three or four cycles of platinum-based therapy seemed to maximize the effect that you had on response in overall survival. And by going beyond four or certainly six cycles that you don't necessarily improve outcomes, but you tend to have an increasing rate of cumulative toxicities. So we kind of came in that about four cycles seems to be where you maximize the benefit of platinum-based therapy. At the same time, we knew that there were several drugs being approved by the FDA that were used as so-called second-line therapy docetaxel, pemetrexid, and erlotinib, and that the FDA approved them because they were shown to have a survival advantage over best supportive care or placebo. So we knew these drugs worked in the second line setting. So the thought was, well, why not use them earlier? And if patients are treated with four cycles and they have a benefit from treatment, either by having stable or responding disease, that maybe using second line therapy earlier we'll call it maintenance, because you're trying to maintain the benefit you got with first-line therapy, would provide a benefit. And we know with pemetrexid and also with erlotinib that there is a survival advantage associated with doing four cycles of platinum-based therapy and then using either pemetrexid as a so-called switch maintenance, so it's new, and erlotinib. And now we know that using pemetrexid in the first four cycles and then continuing pemetrexid after four cycles as maintenance has a survival advantage. And so I think this maintenance phenomenon is really, in the first four cycles, you're really identifying patients that have some sensitivity to treatment, and that by prolonging the duration of treatment or sequencing to a known effective treatment in the second-line setting, that you have an advantage with regard to both progression-free survival as well as overall survival. So I think, as you point out, I think this has kind of become a standard of care for this population. I don't think maintenance therapy is a mandate for all patients. There are a lot of patients who get through four cycles or so, and they have a lot of side effects, and they need a break. And so I give a lot of patients a treatment break so they can recover from first-line therapy and then try to intervene with early second-line treatment because one of the risks is is that there'll be disease-related complications 
that will prevent you from giving second-line therapy. So you got to give it early in this particular setting. And my idea of maintenance therapy really is, in many cases, either prolonged duration therapy or early intervention of second-line therapy in patients who demonstrate some degree of treatment sensitivity. So these patients you presented had adenocarcinoma, which is the most common form of non-small cell. Let's hear about your 64-year-old man who had squamous cell. Yeah, so he was a smoker and had worked for the city for many years, presented with, I think, if I remember correctly, right-sided chest pain, had a upper lobe lesion that seemed to abut the chest wall, probably responsible for his pain in that area. He also had several contralateral nodules, also, I think, three or four hypodense lesions in the liver. We ended up actually, before he saw me, actually, he had a biopsy of the upper lobe lesion that was pretty classic squamous cell. You know, nowadays, about 20 to 25% of patients are of squamous histology. And it's important to make that distinction for a number of different reasons. One is we tend not to do standard molecular testing in patients with pure squamous cell, particularly those that have smokers, which most of the squamous population is. As a sidebar, I would, if you have a never smoker and the PATH report comes back squamous, I probably would test that patient just to make sure since their smoking status is that of a never smoker, I would go ahead and test even though they weren't squamous. But a never smoker with squamous is an unusual patient in the United States. The other issue is, as we've just recently mentioned, not using bevacizumab and also not using pemetrexid since its indication is only a non-squamous population of patients. So what was this man's status clinically at that point? He was a solid PS1. Again, this gentleman came with his wife and daughter. And again, his wife was a constant presence at every visit. His daughter probably made every second or third visit or so. And this, again, was a guy who was kind of the salt of the earth guy. His daughter was very, I can't remember exactly what she did for a living, but she was very informed, very intelligent, always had good questions, often had some print off from the internet about something related to squamous cell. And he actually was one of these guys that would, you know, whatever you think is right, doc, is the right thing to do, and I'm happy to do it. He got started, since he was symptomatic, I treated him with carboplatinum and nabpaclitaxel, mainly based upon the observation that when using nabpaclitaxel in combination with carboplatinum, the response rate has been shown to be higher than standard paclitaxel and carboplatinum. And since he was having disease-related symptoms, I felt using a regimen with a higher response rate would more likely give him palliation. One of the considerations that we had was some local radiotherapy to his chest wall, but he obviously had liver disease and contralateral lung disease, and so he needed systemic therapy, and we felt that there was a good chance that he would improve with systemic treatment. Can you talk a little bit more about what napaclitaxel actually is, and what's the difference between that and sort of the regular cremophore-based paclitaxel, particularly in terms of side effects and method of administration? So the standard paclitaxel is not a water-soluble compound. And so you might think, as I describe it to patients, how do you get a water-insoluble compound into a human being when we're 98% water? 
Well, you put it in solvents, and in this case, cremophore and a little bit of alcohol. And when you infuse alcohol and cremophore, many patients don't like it. They have hypersensitivity reactions or intolerant reactions. And so it's been a problem. And we know that paclitaxel is a very active agent. And so there were a number of efforts done with this drug to try to make it water-soluble. And one of them was using nanoparticle technology to bind it to albumin. And when you think about albumin, it's the most common protein we have in the body. So it really makes it water-soluble. It takes away the solvents such as cremophore. It gets rid of the alcohol, so you don't need standard pre-medication. You know, the steroids and the histamine blockers, you don't need to do that routinely for these patients. It can be infused in 10 to 15 minutes versus several hours, as we typically do with paclitaxel. And it's been shown in breast cancer as well as lung cancer and now pancreatic cancer that it's a very effective agent for the treatment of these diseases. And it really is taking a drug that we've had for quite some time, but binding it to albumin and infusing it in a different way. Same drug, different formulation. Any thoughts or data about the issue of neuropathy with the NAB paclitaxel compared to standard paclitaxel? Yeah, I think at least in lung cancer, you know, the common belief is that this may be less neuropathic. One of the issues with taxanes is that if you give taxanes on a weekly schedule, they tend to be less neuropathic than in every three-week schedule. And so when nabpaclitaxel was studied in lung cancer, it was compared on a weekly basis to standard paclitaxel on an every three-week basis. And in that trial, which I was a part of, the rate of serious neuropathy was 3% with nabpaclitaxel versus 12% with standard paclitaxel. Part of that may be due to the fact that if you bind it to albumin, you don't have the cremophore. There is some preclinical data suggesting that cremophore does have direct neuropathy complications. So you get rid of the cremophore. The paclitaxel is the same. Obviously, it's bound to albumin in this case. But I think most of it may be related to the weekly schedule. And it's been known for quite some time that weekly schedules of taxanes produce less neuropathy than giving a higher dose every three weeks or so. What happened to this man while he received the carboplatin and nabpaclitaxel? And what's his current situation? So when I saw him back for cycle two, he had largely resolved his chest pain. So we suspected that he was responding. He did have a nice response. We actually, knowing that he had that symptom relief, I actually didn't scan him after two cycles. I scanned him after four cycles because I was using the evidence that his pain got better as an evidence of a response. And I didn't think I needed a CT scan to prove that at that time. His CT scan after four cycles did show a nice partial response in all sites. And at that point, that's kind of my standard duration of therapy. He was in a response. His disease was really not threatening. There are much, as you mentioned before, the two most commonest maintenance agents are the two drugs we don't use in squamous cells. So certainly pemetrexid and bevacizumab were not part of his option. And so we decided to give him a treatment break. And I think I just saw him, and I think if I remember correctly, this guy, that decision was made last August. And I think I've been scanning him every couple of months. I saw him this week, and actually his scan now, it's been not quite six months, about five months or so. 
And he's still in a good response. In fact, wanted to travel down to South Carolina because he was offered to advise with regard to some job that he was involved in South Carolina. So I said, I don't see any reason why you can't do it. We're going to scan you in another couple months. If you have any problems between now and two months from now, you know, be in touch. But otherwise, your scan today looks good. I don't know when you're going to progress. I was kind of surprised that he hadn't progressed. Obviously, the median time to disease progression usually is around three months or so. But this guy is looking good, and that's kind of his current status.